Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about today's guest, a, a very, very frequently requested guest. Um, usually in response to me having John Padoritz on here. Um, it's usually like, okay, you had Padoritz again, great, but like, where's Greenwald? And I don't mean Glenn. And so Abe Greenwald, uh, you're the executive editor. I'm the executive editor. Executive editor of Commentary Magazine. Um, for those of you who don't understand how this works, Pod is like the flashy guy who goes to all the clubs, right, in the discos, and he like he he he's the guy who brings the white bag and raises the money and has the good time and uh, drives the fast cars and all that kind of stuff. And Abe Greenwald is the guy who's who's behind who actually makes the thing run. And um, and how long have you been at commentary? Oh man. I, I feel like it's 15 years, but maybe I've been saying 15 years for, for longer than 15 years. Yeah, I know what that, how that feels. But uh, rough, roughly, I think uh, I've been there in some capacity since late 2007. And then I came on full time, I guess, in 2008. And there is no relationship to Glenn Greenwald, as far as you're aware. Blessedly, no. Yes. Okay, fair. Um, you have the cover story, uh, cover article. Story is kind of a weird term to use for eggheady journals for the special end of summer, two month double issue on the decline of trust, um, in America. And, um, it's a good 30,000 foot for someone who's like, who hears this stuff a lot and wants to sort of get it contextualized in a broader picture. I, I highly recommend it to people. We'll put it in the show notes. And, uh, but why don't you sort of lay out the general thesis and all that kind of stuff. And then, um, we'll take it from there. Yeah, I think it was about trying to sort of piece together all the different threads that have been contributing to um, a, a real sense of distress in the country, but not just distress, um, sort of disorientation. Um, this this feeling that we're we've entered sort of new territory with each with each bad news cycle. Uh, everything from um, doubting election results to just competing uh, legal claim. Our, our politics are completely marked by competing legal claims. And then there was this one week in April, I think, when um, like four young Americans in different states were shot, at least one of them killed, um, for making the most innocent mistakes, like driving into a wrong uh, driveway, knocking on the wrong door, getting into the wrong car. Um, and it seemed, uh, sort of a harbinger of something and, uh, 
it's like, well, what, what is, what, what, what kind of links all this together? And, um, I think it is, it has to do with this absolutely collapsing sense of trust in the country, which polls, uh, uh, polling has shown over and over again, the dropping trust in our institutions, in the government, uh, and in one another, um, which is, which is the sort of big thing. And I think the, the, the sort of the big points in my article, to the extent that they're big points, um, is that while we had been heading in this direction for a while, for since, since I think in some sense, since the 60s, as, as, as Robert Putnam had pointed out long ago, um, I feel as if the events of 2020, uh, namely the pandemic and then the killing of George Floyd and everything that followed on the killing of George Floyd, um, as I say in the piece, sort of broke the back of American trust. Um, and uh, all the official stories about the pandemic, about, um, about uh, 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 dealing with the pandemic, about school closures and masks, um, the shifting stories about them um, um, started to sort of get chipped away at, and, 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 the, and the official stories began falling apart. Similarly, I think um, uh, there was a there was a, a big bogus campaign in the wake of the the, the terrible killing of George Floyd about um, police and uh, the the supposedly continued systemic racist nature of our of our country and that I think sort of threw everything into disarray and the other point which is related to this is that so in addition to these official establishment untruths and collapsing narratives um, to counter them, sort of anti-establishment types, which is an interesting, which is a, the, the phrase established, the phrase is establishment and anti-establishment is something we talk about in the commentary podcast quite a bit because it's sort of hard now to figure out who's establishment, who's anti-establishment. If you have a, you know, a president or an ex-president, um, that's, he, he would certainly, like Trump, he would certainly strike you as an establishment figure. Um, yet he's the sort of at the top of this kind of anti-establishment way of thinking, let's say. Um, but the anti-establishment type started throwing up their own complete lies um, in response um, about the pandemic, about uh, vaccines, about the war in Ukraine. Um, and then so we sort of ended up existing in this culture where there's, a, there's this sort of binary choice to believe um, one set of untruths, the official ones or the, the, the unofficial ones. Um, and that's makes for a very destabilizing, disoriented country. First of all, listeners should not adjust their headphones. Um, those who listen to the commentary podcast are unaccustomed to hearing such a long, uninterrupted disquisition from a brainwald. <laughs> but, uh, I can say something about that. Would you like to? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> it is very funny to talk about how John interrupts and goes on. The truth is, I speak on the commentary podcast whenever I wish. It takes me a long time to think of something that I have sort of confidence in saying that that's novel enough to, to merit my speaking it. Um, so I am actually thankful that uh, John and Continetti and Christine can sort of fill up the time while I, while I try to get my thoughts together. There is, I, yeah, I never feel as, as if I'm being stepped on ever. So in, in fairness to, I'm not sure who, 
maybe you, I've always gotten the sense that you are more deliberate and like surgical and like you wait and like, okay, I want to say this. And then I don't have anything else that I want to say. So I'm not going to say it. The person it's more, most fun to talk about was Noah, yeah. who was, uh, it was almost like the orderlies were in there and they had the Hannibal Lecter mask on his head. And then every now and then they would take it off long enough for him to get, like jump in. And then they'd like, no, no, that's all you get back on back. Your muscle guys back on now. No, but as I told you in the, 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 the green room, as it were, um, I have to make fun of pod because it's in the contract. Of course. You know, people have come to expect it. Um, I do love the guy. So this point about the establishment, which I, you know, I believe, do you remember Henry Fairley? The English journalist used to write for the New Republic back in the day. Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. I believe he's the guy who actually popularized the term the establishment. And I think that one of the problems we've got is that when the it's 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 this thing I obsess about with like elites, right? Everyone says they're anti-elite. You know, Ted Cruz, who's a two-term senator married to a Goldman Sachs managing director, you know, is railing about the elites as if you know, this Princeton and Harvard grad um, isn't one, right? I mean, Elizabeth Warren is railing about the elites, this former Harvard professor, you know, the, mo- the most prominent Native American politician in American life um, is talking about elites. And I think that part of the problem is that with this establishment stuff, the establishment is as balkanized as everything else. And so, but people don't internalize that. So what they think is they're looking at the piece of the Arctic shelf that is broken off. That is the part of the establishment they choose to recognize. And they still think it covers the entire establishment. And so you have, you have left wingers attacking the quote unquote establishment based on like what four billionaires are doing and three Republicans. And you have right wingers attacking the establishment based on what, what, a handful of elite universities and a handful of elite politicians are doing. And that's fine because all that stuff is perfectly legitimate to criticize. The, I think the, one of the problems you get is when you think that little facet of the disco ball of the establishment is the entire thing. And therefore you feel like it's oppressing you when in fact it's, it's sort of, it's a free for all out there among, among elites and that there are plenty of elites on your side and there are plenty of elites arrayed against you. But that's a much more difficult and complex thing to talk about. If you think that the elites are just the people who are out to get you, that's going to yield a certain kind of culture and a certain kind of politics. Absolutely. But I, I do think that the, when it comes to media, journalists, um, it can feel as if you are being oppressed by this sort of this entity that encompasses the horizon. Um, when you're you know talking about narratives, I mean that that I think is sort of the best way to to for for me to think about establishment. It's certainly not it's not about um, institutions necessarily or prominent figures. It's sort of it's the it's the the entities who who, who could sort of come together around an agreed upon story, a, a take on a on a given issue or development. Um, and I think that's that, and that becomes the sort of the target and the, and the, and the thing that people are against. So if the, if the story, if the, if the, if this is what I mean that when they say, uh, when they would say, um, 
well, the lab leak hypothesis is a conspiracy theory and COVID originated in a wet market. That's that's very much in it. I take I, I take what you're what you're saying, your larger analysis. But that strikes me as a sort of a perfect establishment narrative there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fair. That's fair, particularly because the slice of the analogy, uh, the establishment that was saying that really did have close to monopoly power over the the relevant issues. Right. I mean, it's you can have someone from Hoover or AI or wherever have a who's part of an establishment, but they're not the ones running the CDC or, you know, HHS or whatever. And so there's a there's a legitimacy and authority to that segment of the establishment that is different than just, you know, the CEO of some company who has no more expertise than anybody else about those issues. I think that's fair. So the other thing I want to fly by you on this, because I was, I was thinking about it as I was rereading the piece this morning, is, you know, I, I wrote about this last week about one of the problems we have in America is, I think you can call it a boredom epidemic. And what I mean by that is we're so used to amusing ourselves perpetually that even the slightest bit of ennui of downtime feels like an eternity. And I see this in my daughter. I see this in her generation. I see it in myself, right? I mean, like when you're, when you're addicted to scrolling and 24 hour news and all the rest, just being alone with your thoughts can be seem (laughs) disorienting. And, and the problem with boredom, and there's a, there's a lot of intellectual history about how basically radicalism gets born of boredom, right? You have the, intellectual classes who from the bourgeois are usually tend to be the radical revolutionary types and um and they get bored with the status quo and they just want to change everything flip the table kind of thing and so i kind of feel that the as you write about in the piece the the bowling alone problem you know the retreating from civil society from civic associations the little platoons um it's compounded by the fact that not only are people retreating from bowling leagues and church socials and whatever, but they're retreating to screens. And when your entire political experience is mediated by screens, either in your hand or on your TV or on your computer, the, the blood brain barrier between sort of fiction and reality is just much softer in all sorts of ways, right? Because these are, these are mediums of narratives. When you have to leave your house every day to go work in concrete buildings and handle concrete things, life seems more concrete. But when everything's, you know, cut and paste, clip art, kind of scroll, drag and drop, you feel like your politics and your reality can be kind of drag and drop, too. Absolutely. Have you, have you ever had it's like a, this sort of like phantom urge in the when you're in the non-digital world to sort of do a digital thing, like to, yes. like to, to, to hit a volume up button or... Or delete or go back, you know, uh, even when you're not in front of a screen. I mean, that that's the sort of scariest um, part. But I, I agree with you completely. And and the thing about these screens, and this is this is this is another aspect of the trust problem that I didn't really get into here. But is then when you when you go to these screens, then you 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 also um, throw yourself into these substitute communities, um, mm-hmm. um, these um, facsimile communities. Um, but they're not really community because you don't have to make um, any of the sacrifices that are required um, in actual community, which then sort of build bonds of trust because you're you you that's they sort of mark your investment. 
Um, so the, the communities are, are these sort of, they're just sort of pooled grievance uh, uh, stations. Um, and that, 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 is a, that is a huge contributing factor. And the fantasy reality blur, I think, is another huge aspect of discontent and activism uh, going on. There's a, there's a tremendous cosplay aspect to all of it, um, uh, uh, to my mind. Um, when you think of the two Justins, you know, uh, who sort of dressed up, um, uh, you know, in some various versions of iconic 60s, uh, you know, civil rights leaders. Um, there is a total, I think, sort of blurring of fantasy game, uh, real world p- p- political life um, that that that's that's going on here. Um, and yeah, every uh, each part of it, I think, contributes to um, sort of an unreality, which is, you know, a sort of a sense of well, I, I don't really trust what, what what's what's going on here in front of me. Yeah. I mean, and, and the funny the thing is, is like it does it's sort of like when you you notice a new you notice an actor that you've seen in movies for a long time, but you never really realize it. And then you go back and you realize they've been in dozens of movies that you've seen over the last 30 years. I do this with Tom Skerritt, you know, we're like, oh, my gosh, she's been like in almost every other movie I've ever seen. Um, but um, it's similarly like you start to realize that tweaking the narrative has been through line for American. It's part of politics. It's always been part of politics. It's just that. So like, I remember just give you an example, you know, the Clintons were the ones who figured out in the nineties that already the pace of news was accelerating so much that they could dismiss a new allegation by calling it old news almost immediately. And there was, it was some, it's, it's a, it's, 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 it's a weird hack of people's brains to say, Oh, it's not, it's not a new thing. It's old. Oh, then I don't need to care about it. And they were very effective about it. Um, my favorite example of this was actually not Clinton, but was Ron Brown. Remember him? He was the, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so was he was the secretary of commerce. Maybe it was transportation. It doesn't matter. And he was a cabinet secretary in the Clinton administration. And he had some terrible, like didn't pay taxes, social security taxes kind of thing. And I remember he was on Tim Russ, I'll meet the press like, January five and the Russert asked him about it. And, and he said, ah, Tim, I paid those taxes last year <laughs> by which he meant like December 29 <laughs> or six days ago, <laughs> but it was so brilliantly done. <laughs> oh, last year. That's a long time ago. Then we'll move on. Yeah. And then, and then just, but that's, that was what move on was. Remember move on was we're sick of hearing about this. It was a brain hack more than anything else. That's right. Um, and so anyway, I think the, the lesson about Trump in some ways is he implicitly understood this because he was sort of a, he is sort of a Chauncey Gardner guy who, who himself never reckon, fully recognized the difference between TV and reality, right? I mean, like he would talk about how he was on 60 Minutes with Vladimir Putin when all it was was that they had their, their individual segments were on the same episode, even though they never met. They were in different countries and they recorded at different times. But he had this, he has this blurring thing where he thinks online polls are the same things as actual polls. He thinks ratings are polls. It's this sort of weird in and out of the slipstream kind of thinking. And because he thinks that way, I think he has the ability to actually affect people's perception of reality better than, than normals do. 
by just simply asserting different realities and forcing people to sort of bend to them. He's shockingly good at it. I mean, he is, yeah. uh, you know, for all the, the sort of, there's like a lot of woo-woo talk, especially on the left, um, about sort of manifesting, right? Um, your, your reality. Uh, who, who does it better than Trump, you know? Uh, it, it's a, it's, it sort of burns them. I think that, that he's able to sort of shift reality in this way. And he is, he has really had the sort of perfect experience to be the guy that blurs reality and, 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 um, fiction. He was a reality TV star for, for years. Reality TV is overwhelmingly fake. I mean, it's manufactured, um, but it's sold as reality. He was a wrestling figure. You know, or sort of figure in the periphery of, of, of professional wrestling. Wrestling is a fake sport that people get invested in. You know, so this is this is very comfortable ground for him. Also, just I mean, I mean to, to go a step further, the his whole real estate business and even and then his marketing business was based much more on the perceptions than the reality of the business. Right? He would work the PR people. He would raise money abroad because he knew that if he was on TV as the, this famously rich person, they would know him only as this famously rich, most important rich person in America. It was all like kayfabe, right? It was all working the 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 shadows on the wall, not the actual things throwing the shadows. Yeah, I think that that that's largely true. And then he, he sort of carried it over uh, into 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 the White House, you know. It was it was his selling of things that that people liked more than the things themselves. Uh, that's that's I think that continues to be the case. It's it, it is it is the brand. It's not the it's not the ideas, except for the the central idea, which is which gets back to the trust issue, which is you're being screwed. They're lying to you. I stand between them and you. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, 
says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, to switch gears just ever so slightly. Um, so I'm a re- I'm definitely a regular listener of the commentary podcast. There are days when I miss it because it's five days a week or because you're talking about something that I can't get into for that day because I got to do other stuff. And a lot of my podcast listening is is basically prep for other things that I'm doing kind of thing. So but one of the things is that ideologically, you guys are microns off of you know, we're, we're basically on the same page, like, you know, plus or minus two pages on a very thick book. Right. <laughs> and, um, but something that you guys have done a good job at is aiming in both directions. Right. And, um, uh, the, the editor's podcast, which I also listen to religiously for all sorts of similar reasons, they've always been a little too focused leftward. Not that they shouldn't be focused leftward. Absolutely. Conservatives should criticize, you know, stuff from the left. But it's less concerned about the threats to the right than I think National Review, which has always seen itself as a as sort of a policeman of, you know, broadly speaking, Big Ten fusionist conservatism. Right. And. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, the place where I kind of differ with everybody is and I go back and forth on this in my own head is how concerned should I be about the new right? Because I can, I can give you a very lengthy case about how we've seen all this crap before. It's a handful of people. It's not going to have find much purchase with the broader American public, never mind the broader American conservative public. Or I can give you chapter and verse on how, as George Will likes to put it, small, dedicated ideological minorities can fundamentally transform not only movements, but countries. And that, and that the movements that you and I belong to either historically or contemporaneously are small ideologically committed minority movements. Right. So, and then there's the, the third point is like, even if they're not going to succeed, the damage they can do to the brand is real. Right. And, um, you know, like just in the last 48 hours, there's been this stupid thing with Tommy Tuberville where he's, for white nationalists in the military. Oh, but he's not for white nationalists. If by white nationalists, you mean the way the left does racist people. I just mean white people who are nationalists, like the inability to understand how that stuff sounds to people outside your tent damages the rest of us who don't want white nationalists in the military. Right? So like, how do you adjudicate all of this as someone who's in the, uh, the rarefied air of, of the New York literary set, um, about how do you, how do, how do you, how do you figure out how much attention or lack thereof you should pay to the this stuff? I mean, I, I'm very conscious of it personally, especially because I've been I've been writing more for the for the website since since Noah 
Noah left and went went to National Review. Um, and uh, but and I think we're also somewhat conscious of it on the podcast, which is that we don't both the left and right are very target rich uh, right now. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing about, you know, if you if you if you were to see commentaries, reader mail, and this is this has been happening, I would guess, since, I don't know, 2015, 2016. It's about 50 50 letters saying like, um, you know, I, I've had it with you guys. Your Trump derangement syndrome is too much to how can you possibly defend a man like Donald Trump? Uh, you know, when you're such an august uh, institution with this uh, high, highbrow opinions. Um, so we, we get slammed for both of it. Um, I think I, 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 I sort of try to split up my effort 50-50 um, to, to go after the crazy left and the crazy right. Um, and the, the, the crazy right, the, the, let's just forget that, the new right, I think uh, poses almost no polit- policy threat uh, to the to the country, um, which I think I think the, the left has that wrong about them. I, I think they're they're ultimately in, impotent on that front because first of all, they don't even have any, any discernible end goals. Uh, everything as the as the Tuberville thing shows ends up being a sort of strange muddle. Um, with, without a sort of, so would you just, just for terminological exactitude, would you exclude from the new, right? The sort of non-crazy, but I think fundamentally wrong sort of Orin cast new industrial policy. Um, the, some of the, the, the Rubio, uh, new workers policy stuff. Would you consider that part of the new, right? Or you think that's part still of like normal main big tent conservatism? Oh, I think they're. I, there's, there's, I, I sort of have this feeling that once you start flirting with the new right, you're actually there. Um, and, and you, the rest of us may not quite realize yet. And I, that, that's, that's from my experience individually with people who used to be very firmly, uh, in the, either the neocon camp or just the sort of pre-Trump conservative camp. And then they'd say things like, you know, maybe, maybe we made a mistake some, somewhere way back when with classical liberalism. Uh, and then the next thing I'd know, they were, you know, full MAGA or whatever. So I think w- once you start flirting with it, I think I think you find it way more seductive than than you than you're letting on. Um, so so I, I kind of think I, 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 I'm not going to give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, sadly. Right. So the other reason I ask is because I do think I mean, I, I broadly agree that the, the uglier parts of the new right have very little chance of having policy success. But you when you said sort of blankly, they don't the. the they're not going to have it. It's like, I don't know the industrial policy, the buy America stuff that does seem to have greater legs than you might think. And I, and again, I don't think that stuff is as racist nativist, not necessarily at least, right. It's just wrong. Um, um, but it's also, there's also lots of connective tissue with stuff that's much worse that, it, you know, they're creating their, they're building their own tent and in one corner are just sort of like, wonks who think that they're smarter industrial planners than everybody and they don't want to have anything to do with the racists and all that kind of stuff but the some of the bad people are defending them against people like me and that creates its own sort of internal cohesion i think that's fair and i think so i should amend what i said i don't think they have the the potential to distort the country with policies um but i think they can sure have have some 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 impact what what i what i do think where i think they're ruinous is a as you say in in ruining the the brand whatever it, it 
had meant to, to be conservative. But I remember when people used to talk about a conservative temperament. Um, and that is just, that is, that has been, that has completely been blown up. Yeah. yeah. But also they ruined the discourse. Everything now is a sort of stupid conversation, especially when you have new right figures claiming that they're the first ones who have cared about something. They're the first ones who've cared about the rising China. They're the first ones who cared about uh, failing immigration policy. And then they become the stand in for what in some cases is decades of, of opinion on the right about, you know, sober opinion about various problems that that all gets washed away. And now we have to discuss the, the, the silly things that the new right has in, injected into the discussion. I mean, you guys don't have a huge staff and all that. Um, and I don't know how many interns you have, but are you finding the youngins don't quite get this stuff and that you get, are you like, I remember 10 years ago, someone at reason told me that they were starting that the definition of libertarianism had sufficiently changed that they were starting to occasionally get interns or applicants who were for the state forcing the, the baker to make the gay wedding cake because they had been raised on a positive liberty notion of libertarianism, right? Which is an internally consistent, morally, you know, uh, debatable, <laughs> um, but real kind of position. It's just not the American tradition of libertarianism. It's the American tradition of sort of Rawlsian positivist liberalism, right? Which is just a different thing. And I'm now finding in the, on the periphery from stories, anecdotes and all that kind of stuff, you know, similar stuff from friends who were, Federal Society Associated, uh, Federal Society types or, you know, people at, you know, in AI and AI world, or if you just look at what's happening at Heritage, that there's a younger generation that just actually doesn't, that thinks that Charlie Kirk's definitions and approach to conservatism is what conservatism is. And, you know, and because Kirk will quote or people like Kirk, you know, I'm not trying to elevate him. I think he's a negligible person, but um, they'll quote. Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan or, or William F. Buckley, but in the context of sort of doing boob bait stuff. And so the kids think, Oh, well, he's quoting those people. So those people must agree with all this other stuff that Charlie Kirk is saying. And it's, you know, the cleanup on aisle eight on all this stuff is just really annoying to me. Oh, it's, it's because they're also aggressive about it. Um, because they, they come into this sort of fully ignorant of the pre Trump of the pre-Trump right. Um, and then if you challenge them on this, and this is especially true if they're younger, um, they'll call you a liberal, right? In, right. Unless you, unless you are uh, on board with what they're saying, you're, you're a liberal. So they, they don't know what a conservative is or what a liberal is. Um, so their, their whole starting point is off. Yeah, no, it's very distressing. It's so much so that when you, when you actually encounter uh, someone, you know, under 30 who seems to get it, who seems I get it. I don't mean agrees with you on every point. I just mean seems to understand the lay of the land uh, is historically informed about the lay of the land. It's such a relief. You want to you want to you know nurture that that person and, and and sort of like you know take them you know through the way preserve their 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 instincts here. Yeah, yeah. But the, even the problem there, and this sort of gets back to the screen stuff, is is that for young people, particularly young men, like getting attention, getting notoriety. I mean, like. This is a very old story in human history of wanting your name to ring out, right? And that kind of thing. It goes back to antiquity. And so occasionally you do run into these kids who do know this stuff, but it's just so much more exciting 
to be controversial for dumb reasons than to be responsible for smart ones that they get sit. There's just a lot of kids. I've seen it. I don't want to name names and hurt their careers even more who just get seduced by this stuff and think, Oh, I can touch this forbidden fire and come up with this really interesting novel sort of new line to draw. And then 20 minutes later you see, Oh, look, they spilled the brazier on themselves and they've immolated themselves. It's, you know, the, and part of it again is, is the problem is that like, I'm sure you have similar or adjacent experiences at NR. We were attacked so often by like the, the fever swamp racist, right? You know, the guys at VDare and uh, Chronicles to one extent or another that we just kind of knew where a lot of these lines are. But now because in the wake of Trump, so many of those lines have been erased and, you know, you look at the kids who keep showing up to get Claremont fellowships who have these weird racist associations or, you know, the kids who, oh, I was working for Daily Caller for a while. And then, oh, turns out it's another racist guy and we fire him. You know, I mean, it's like, like they're, 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 they're in the, the, the grain sea, the grain storage, you know, areas. And it's, it's a new world in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a problem, not just with people who get into say opinion journalism and think tank world and that, but um, for ordinary Americans, the, the seductive quality of the new right is, is very real. I mean, I, I, I felt it myself on occasion, you know, it, the, the idea that I, you know, it was always the left that got to complain and, and whine and, and, and get angry and throw things. Oh, we're allowed to do that now too. Well, wait a second. This, 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 this could be fun. I mean, and that is where the sort of the, the, the classical conservative temperament blew up because it wasn't fun to maintain. It actually took work. Uh, it's worthwhile. It's an investment. But um, but Trump Trump sort of, you know, introduced the idea that no, 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 politics is foremost a thrill. Um, and that and that be, is something uh, David French wrote something uh, about this a few days ago at The Times. Um, and that is that is really foremost the appeal. here. All right. So let's switch gears again. I have not followed it. I I think I had pod on to explain the last time we had this go around in Israel with the. Um, the Supreme Court stuff. And can, can you just explain to me what this new round is about? Not well. <laughs> it's like, not it, well, <laughs> you know, like this, it's like algebra to, to, to most Americans, unless you're a very, very uh, uh, close uh, Israel watcher. I mean, uh, other than that, there's this um, the sort of reasonableness law, right. That, uh, yeah. that, that the coalition wants to get rid of because, well, if you have a country without a constitution on what basis can can the judiciary declare uh, laws unreasonable? Um, it's, it's it, to my mind entirely too much uh, uh, power. Uh, beyond that, I, I really cannot tell you because it's it is you know once you get into these coalitions and the and the and the the, the, the different sponsored groups, I'm 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 gone. I, I sort of you know we, on the podcast we have Dan Senor on and he he's the he's the best at breaking it down. Yeah, I mean it's it's I mean I talk about this with Pod. Um, I'm pro-Israel. I think people know that about me, right? I'm I, again in a big book. We're probably a couple pages apart at best, right? The Israeli political system now that it's starting to become a norm, more normal country, is really just friggin' untenable. I, you know, it's just dumb to have no constitution, unicameral legislative 
parliamentary democracy, right? Either you, like I'm a Montesquieu guy. You need some checks and balances. And I agree with all, not all, most of the criticisms of the Supreme court about how like, this is no way to set up a Supreme court or to handle appointments of a Supreme court. I remember judge Bork walking me through all of the crazy activism from the court in the nineties and all that. I get all that. They need a constitutional convention. And I, the, the screaming that would happen at a Israeli constitutional convention is hard to get my mind around, but it, it's kind of got to happen because just this is, it's one thing, you know, I think it was pods and look, the Israel started as an army that created a government to sort of support it. And like, I get that and it was necessary, but most Israelis seem to want to like live in a much more normal kind of Western democracy kind of country. And you just need a better system than they got right now. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing, perhaps it's done. Um, it might've cooled the every, every so often uh, you, you would get pieces in the U S saying, our system is wrong. What we need is a parliamentary uh, uh, system of government. We're 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 untenable. We're unstable. Uh, and and a, we, a, a parliamentary system is really what I think pe- people look at at, at Israel um, and to some extent what what you know sort of uh, what happened to Boris Johnson and think nah you know whatever whatever our other problems I don't know that we need to make that switch. Yeah. Well, I. This is a long-standing grab of mine. I, I think a lot of our problems stem from the fact that people think we live in a parliamentary democracy, and we don't, right? right? And so you have uh, every four years, Democrats or Republicans run about all the stuff they're going to do on the first day once they're elected, as if presidents have the power to do a lot of things on their first day, and they don't, you know? And we vote for parties like it's a parliamentary democracy now, right? We vote a party slate rather than individual politicians. We don't split tickets anymore. And it's really dumb to have a federal presidential system like we have if all the voters are going to think that we live in a parliamentary democracy and I don't want to live in a parliamentary democracy. I just want voters to realize the system that we actually have. And I think, you know, we live in a time where I think it's, it's very risky for democracies of any sort to do a lot of things at once and make big pushes. And I think that that's, that's, you know, we certainly saw that play out in Israel because there's uh, something in the, the culture of a, a political criticism now where everyone is very eager to, to scream coup and fascism and authoritarianism. So you got to go slow, you know, that, that, that despite what, you know, Tom Friedman uh, uh, says, you know, in, in today's New York times or whatever, I think that that lesson has been thoroughly absorbed uh, by BB. I don't know what Tom Friedman said in today's New York Times, but I'm going to stipulate that you're correct in your characterization of it. <laughs> it's about the, the, the degrade, Netanyahu and the degradation of Israel, supposed degradation of Israel. Yeah, I mean, I, I just look, I mean, Tom Friedman knows some things and he's got good sources and stuff, but his behavior in the 1990s and early 2000s vis-a-vis China really should have greater consequences for him. Um the, I mean, not since Lincoln Steffens saying he's been to the Soviet Union and he's seen the future and it works, has there been a greater lickspittle for authoritarian, sort of despotic kind of government? And, um, well, look, I, you know, I remember a very long time ago the, the sort of greatest takedown of his, the world is flat uh, framework was yours. <laughs> uh, uh, it was, you sort of, uh, he's kind of been a silly figure to me ever since then. Yeah. I thank, well, thank you people. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll put it in the show notes. I, um, yeah, anyway, we don't need to get into a, a, a Tom Friedman thing. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So, all right. So we are recording this on Wednesday, July 12th. So I'm sure you have this experience. It's harder when you do a daily podcast the way you do. There's some stories that you just want to wait and see because the whole thing could go one way or another. And um, I'm really glad I basically kept my powder dry on the Comer Biden corruption stuff um, because of these latest sort of developments where this guy, apparently the, 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 the source that they had lost Turns out that he's now been indicted on eight counts. I think some of them are kind of iffy counts. And I think that, the, like, if you watch Morning Joe, the gloating is just nonstop. And I don't think that's called for either because two things can be simultaneously true. This guy could be utterly corrupt and guilty of a lot of bad things. And he could also have evidence, right? It's like Andy McCarthy always used to say, the people who usually gave me the best evidence in mob trials were mobsters because if you're not a mobster, it's very difficult to get the evidence about what the mob is doing. And that's not to say that I think he's telling the truth or anything. I just don't know. And so I'm just keeping my powder dry on the whole thing. But I'm just wondering, you know, where you come down on it. Well, I think given the way that the entire Hunter story has been handled and very aggressively suppressed, I am skeptical of character assassinations along the way here. Um, uh, let's definitely wait and see. I mean, the whole nature of the story has changed in terms of the public perception. I think the greatest favor that that was done the Bidens here was that this be that this started as a sort of tabloid story that um, Hunter was just this crazy drug addicted prostitute getting maniac who recorded everything. Um, and isn't that funny? And that that sort of kept a lot of the, the the much more serious issues at bay. And then you get into some of the shell companies and the information that that emerged there and the contracts, big contract. And then said, well, truth, none of this seems illegal. It, but just it just looks very bad. The Bidens have an optics problem here. I think we're we're very close to to potentially some sort of some sort of breakthrough on the legal front. But I, I, I again. It could go, it could blow up in, into smoke. I absolutely agree with you. And um, this is sort of another danger of, of, the, new, of the new right. It's like it's when they start prosecuting cases, um, I mean, you know, in this public arena, they, they overshoot um, so frequently um, that you don't want to get on the side of this clearly points to the big guy. It's over. Impeach. You know, I don't, I think that's all. I don't think we're, we're there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, 
I couldn't, I mean, it was amazing that within minutes of the story breaking that this guy was being charged with, you know, eight different counts of stuff. Um, the immediate reaction from all the usual suspects, including like Nancy Mace on TV was they're just, they're silencing our witness. This is purely witness intimidation. Like maybe I don't think so. Like I, I think they, I, if I had to bet right now, I think this guy, what is his name? Dow. Yeah. Gal, yeah um, some is really name. I think he's being overcharged, might be being overcharged. Right. Like FARA violations are always kind of, you know, like that's what they got Manafort with. And, not a lot of people have ever been charged criminally charged with Farah stuff. And so that's always like a red flag to me, but you know, trying to get around Iranian sanctions to sell Iranian oil to China. Eh, that sounds kind of serious. And, and I think that so, but this sort of gets to this point that we we're talking about before, about when you get everything through screens, it's like you're sitting around watching a movie and you say, Oh, I bet that guy is the one who did it. Or I bet you they're introducing this guy. Cause he's going to be the one who actually finds out that the blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's not, life right i mean there's no writers of this script behind the scenes this is life and everyone is sort of trying to anticipate where the narrative goes but in the process of anticipating where a narrative goes you kind of crowdsource the writing of the narrative and um and life isn't real life isn't a narrative right narrative is the thing that our brains impose on the hurly-burly of reality and um and i just think it's it's I, maybe I'll write about this today. I don't know. I, I, I've come to have just a really profound gratitude for the idea of courts because in courts, narratives fall apart if they don't have facts and there are rules of evidence and the other side gets to contest your facts and your evidence. And that's why, you know, Trump talks all this stuff about the stolen election, but none of his lawyers could argue about it in a court. I just want, I want courts to settle so much more stuff. And I usually hate courts, but it's, it's sort of where I come from. But, you know, part, part of the problem here, and this is something I've written about before, is that to get back to link this also back to the new right here, is that when they lose in courts or when a development like this gives them an opportunity to say that uh, they're being suppressed, they love it. They genuinely like losing. Um, and I, I mean that unironically. Un 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 uh, it's, it's gives them, it, it, it reinforces the rightness of the identity that they've chosen. It's like, this is, this is how they know they're being marginalized. See, they're screwing us. It is better to, to lose and be self-righteous than win and go, Oh, well now, well now what do I do? You know? Yeah. No, I mean the, the martyrdom thing is real. Um, the, I, the best practical example of that recently was the house freedom caucus trying to unravel the deal that McCarthy did with, uh, with Biden because the, a political win and everyone, everyone said McCarthy had a political win with that thing. Right. It, it was, it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the greatest act of statesmanship since you know <laughs> Churchill or anything, but it was, it was a win. And, and it was a win when people didn't think he could get a win and we, a bunch of critics, including me, gave him credit for it. And the House Freedom Caucus, the internal logic of that crowd, which is not all new right, but there's a similar psycho psychosis going on, was like, well, if we won, that means we must have sold out. We must have compromised some matter of principle, and we can't have that. Because the only way we can know that we stuck by our principles is if we, if we lose profoundly. <laughs> and 
that's a really weird approach to politics. But it is so you're so right. It's when winning becomes a crisis, you know, um, which 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 explains why, you know, in the 20 in the last last midterms, um, all the Trumpy candidates lost. You know, yeah. it was much. And, and by the way, some of them will go on to have very lucrative careers uh, uh, having nothing to do with electoral politics. Um, so. So, yeah. And there, there are great benefits to losing. And if you are not. If you are not a politician and if you're not a, a pundit, but you are an ordinary American who's who's wrapped up in this stuff, um, losing is also has great therapeutic value because it it's. It said, well, see, I can't, I can't get out of this situation. Look, look, look how the forces ranged against us. My voice will never be heard. Um, so it has all sorts of appealing, weird benefits. I think it gets to the crux of the newfound love for Robert Kennedy. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and Robert Kennedy is just the schmuck who has been lying. I'm not, and I'm sorry, I get, I get, I was at, I was approached by somebody at, a, at, a, at, at Tevi Troy's kid's wedding. Um, who came up and said, big fan, blah, 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 nice guy. Uh, and he was just sort of like, what do you think of Robert F. Kennedy? And I said, oh, I think he's been a fraud and a grifter and a liar for, since I've ever been aware of him. And, um, and the only thing I like about him is, is that he's making a lot of the issues that have become right wing issues. He's been taking them back for the left where they belong. Right. And, um, and he couldn't believe I was saying any of this stuff. And he was like, you don't think there's anything to his campaign and his message that is like useful for, and I get this in email all the time too. And I don't want to single out this one poor guy. They're seeing something I don't see. And I think they're, I want to be really clear about this. 100% wrong. And I'm a hundred percent right. There are lots of things I don't say that about. This is one of them. He's a bad guy who makes stuff up or, or imagines stuff. Maybe it's not all lies. Um, he's gotten people killed with his advice about vaccines and various things, but there's something about this martyr who just says the entire world is this, this narrative where everything is, is arrayed against us. And I'm the one guy telling the truth. And he's a, and it's seductive ambidirectional conspiracy theorist. Um, so wherever yeah. you are on the, on the, on the conspiracy theory spectrum, you've, you've got, you've got a man in him. But this, but an interesting thing has came up after I wrote the the trust piece. Um, but I think it relates to it. Where do you stand on the idea of debating him? Um, uh, I I I I've changed my thinking on on this because I think the times have changed. I think it has to do with the with the trust crisis. There has, you know, people I assume know. Um, he went on Joe Rogan, and then there was the the and and you know did what he does best, which is spew his crazy theories about vaccines and about various other things. And then, uh, uh, Hofez, uh, I forget his first name. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor, um, yeah. sort of, uh, uh, took off, took off after him on Twitter. And then Joe Rogan made an offer to Hofez to, to, to debate, uh, uh, RFK for, with, with some money involved on his show and he turned it down. And there, and then, so this, this whole discussion came up about, uh, why you shouldn't debate, cranks and conspiracy theorists. And, um, I had agreed with that thinking for a very long time, um, that, that the, the only way to elevate a fringe figure conspiracy theorist is to, is to sort of put him on a stage with someone who's, who's actually worthwhile and, uh, a known figure and, and, and sort of raise his, raise his standing that way. And that, 
you can't really debate them well because they they the the conspiracy theorists resort to all sorts of nonsense that is it's so wrong it's irrefutable in a way um i no longer feel that way because this gets back to the established sort of establishment opinions and establishment figures have let us down and mm-hmm. what is beyond the pale epistemologically um needs to be sort of reestablished. Uh, it is no longer a given that you cannot um, say the things that, that RFK Jr. says and be taken seriously. Uh, we need to, the, the case needs to be made again that, that, that this is nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm really sympathetic to that. I, I agonize about it. It's sort of like, you know, the, the CNN town hall with Trump where Caitlin Collins I think she did better than people claim, but she was also sort of, it was also sort of a setup to fail kind of thing, right? Because with a with a, a time clock running and you're talking to somebody who's going to just simply make stuff up, it and and with the amount of distrust of institutions and official narratives as you talk about, um, just simply saying we fact checked this, CNN has fact checked this, you're wrong, means nothing to people who want to believe he's right. Right. And I think it's a similar problem with, with Kennedy. Ramesh makes the case. If I, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but I believe his argument was when you're going to debate people like Trump, and I think it applies to Kennedy too, you can't just keep saying that's not true. You have to say, you have to argue and explain why their version of reality makes no sense, which is a subtle distinction but you have to work within the internal logic of what they're saying. It's like, so instead of saying there have been a hundred studies that say that Wi-Fi does not cause brain cancer, you have to be like, do you know anybody who has, you know, do you have brain cancer? There's Wi-Fi in this room right now. I've had Wi-Fi, you know, and like, and do it that way. And um, again, I don't, I don't know that it's going to work that much for the diehard true believers because he's going to lie and say, I have a hundred clients who have brain cancer from Wi-Fi. Right. But it's a start. Yeah, I think I, I think Ramesh is right about that. I mean, part of the problem, you know, data has lost so much of its like epistemological power now because there is a study and a counter study for absolutely everything. Um, and, yeah. and people don't. And you put that in, in combination with the retraction crisis, which, you know, every scientific paper is now, you know, is it, every experiment is can't be reproduced and the data don't line up. And uh, um, yeah, I think, I think the arguments have to come from another place. I think, I think that's, 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 that's very perceptive. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, to take one up, cause I looked, I went down a rabbit hole on this when I was writing about Kenny last week. Um, the claim that cell phones cause tumors. Like we now have had cell phones in wide usage by like 80, 90%, 95% of the American public for 25 years, something like that. How many people do you know have cell phone tumors? Right. You know? right. um, and like if and if and just think for two seconds, if 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 it really was a thing and it's not a thing, I want to be really clear, it's not a thing. There's no evidence of incidents of, of increased tumors that would be caused by cell phones. You would know someone. It's like this is one of the reasons we knew that COVID wasn't a complete hoax is because we knew lots of people who got COVID. Um, if 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 cell phones had a one in a thousand chance of causing weird tumors on the side of your head, you would see people with tumors all the friggin' time. It just doesn't make sense. But like, 
he gets to say it. And, and the weird thing is the Silicon Valley people who love Kennedy, who's basically been saying their technology right. is killing people. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, I, I, I don't get that part of it. I mean, uh, the, the, the thing where the um, looking for individual examples and, and, and I agree with you that, that that is the right way to sort of think about it. But that presented a problem with the anti-vax hysteria over COVID because you're talking about, you know, a hundred something million people got the vaccination. Right. Law of large numbers. And though. then when you have a yeah. pool that large, people are going to die. So then, so then you, anyone who died and did get, and got the, got the vaccination at some point, you could say, well, he shouldn't have gotten the vaccine, you know? Right. right. I mean, but like, again, law of large numbers in a sample size of a hundred million people, I can find proof to you that toothpaste kills. I, exactly you know, right. Like, That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know? All right. So we had a little, I don't think it was a disagreement. I was just, tweaking you on Twitter where you were try you were making the case that people are free to get upset about Joe Biden's treatment of his grandkid, but they should be more upset about Afghanistan um, and the withdrawal. And I tweeted at you, why not both sort of keying off of that? How do you feel about, about Joe Biden these days? I mean, our friend Charlie cook just uh, in a departure from the, the style guide at national review, um, has a piece that's going a little viral called Joe Biden is an asshole. Um, and I'm only saying that word as fair use and fair comment in, in reporting the news to remnant listeners. But um, how do you think he's doing? Where do you think he's, where, where's this thing going? I, I have Charlie's piece bookmarked and I haven't read it yet. I suspect I will agree with it. Um, I, I think he is. Um, uh but I don't think that's the the main problem. That may be his main problem, by the way. I mean, Biden's main problem uh, is not his terrible policies. Um, it and may not even be the fact that he's clearly missing a step uh, these days, whatever that means in, in, in one way or another. Um, but it is that uh, he came into office as somewhat lovable old guy. And um, I think a lot of Americans don't view him that way anymore. Um, and that, that hurts him, I think more than, than his policies to, to some extent, especially on his own side. Um, I, regarding the, 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 his recognizing his seventh grandchild, of course it's unfortunate. It's, it's, it's very bad. Um, mostly it's disgusting that Hunter Biden doesn't recognize his own child. And that's the deal. This is why I disagreed with, with sort of jumping on Joe Biden here. That's the deal Hunter Biden made with the child's mother. Um, we don't know the first thing about what Joe Biden said to Hunter regarding this. He may have been pleading with him to 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 stand up and and be a man and, and accept responsibility for his actions. And, and Hunter may have refused. And then Joe Biden had to reluctantly stand by his son publicly. Who know, we don't know. But I think there are other reasons that I, I thought this was a uh, um, Overwrought, which uh, having to do with the the the, the four year old girl's well being, I don't know that turning her famous family's rejection of her into a water le- Watergate level uh, event is actually good for her in the long run. You know, I sort of think it's a kind of a, 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 a version of leave the kids out of it should actually prevail here, even though it's not as straightforward as saying, oh, well, don't make fun of. Uh, so someone, the president's uh, child who's going through an awkward stage or who seems drunk. Um, but I think there's still a version of that here. 
um, where you shouldn't use her as a kind of political tool to make a point. I think that's all fair. I mean, I, I think that's all that's all. I mean, I remember in the early days of my tenure at National Review, I, I had a lot of fun making fun of Alec Baldwin. And I was sort of associated with making fun of Alec Baldwin. Not as much as making fun of the French, but still a good amount. And and I kind of grew out of it a little bit, you know, and also I loved 30 Rock, so I gave him a little bit of pass for that. But then there was some audio tape of him screaming at his daughter. Oh, I remember. And, and I remember getting a lot of grief from people saying, you know, just let this one go over the plate. It's okay. You know, like, not that I condoned screaming at your kid, but like, if you've been around families that are going through trauma, if you had a family that had trauma, you know, like their parents often have worst moments and kids have worst moments and you shouldn't judge them by it. And you also just don't know what's going on in the black box that is somebody else's family. And so I, I'm very sympathetic to that. It's entirely, I think you're right. I'm that it's, I don't know that it's true, but it's entirely possible that Biden has a better reason than the stated public reason for like, he may think that Hunter is on the precipice of relapse and has made this thing with his kid into a thing and blah, 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 blah. I don't know. Um, I think it is totally fair comment to say that Hunter's a broken, corrupt dude. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of with you and, and um, it is kind of a bank shot. To, to talk about it but that doesn't mean that and i think you'd probably agree doesn't mean the messaging from the white house has been great on all of this stuff and it does tell you that the perils of if you're going to lead with being a family guy you're going to invite scrutiny of family and you know that's well that's fair or not that's just a fact right it's not fair that bears will eat you if you cover yourself with honey and take a nap <laughs> in the woods but it's a fact it's kind of fair, right? you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> so all right, my friend. So um, I know we said we'd only go an hour. We've gone an hour and like four minutes, something like that. Um, but I'm delighted to have you back on. I mean, on. It's been a while uh, with people demanding, you know, get me Greenwald. Um, I hope it wasn't too painful for you. Not at all. I hope it wasn't too pe painful for the people who, who think I had been silenced. Now, this, this is what they were missing. Well, see, it wasn't that great. <laughs> I, I knew what I was doing. I, I was keeping you wanting more. I don't know that less is more, Abe. I think you should get, you know, cut yourself some slack. And do you miss having Noah on the podcast? Or, I mean, I know, you know, I'm not trying to like get office gossip out of this, but I think Continetti, someone said to me that Noah leaving the commentary podcast and going to the editor's podcast made both better. Um, <laughs> and I don't know that that's fair. I know Noah's, I'm a big fan of Noah's and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the discordance between Noah talking at 90 RPM and, uh, and going, trying to get in against pod was a weird sort of Jewish dinner table dynamic to it that, um, I think you were liked or you didn't like. Um, I loved having Noah on the podcast. I love having content on the podcast. They're both very different. I'm still in touch with Noah. Um, I have friends who miss the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the John Noah flare-ups um and i and i have friends who say um oh man what a great change continuity's great um so i i i'm uh what can i say i think um 
I think the podcast has 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 been um, sort of terrific in both both incarnations. Um, trying to think of a group out there that sort of changed lineups and stayed and 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 stayed good uh, as strong both ways. Um, I'm having a, a problem, sort of. Van Halen Ooh, maybe. says um, you. I'm a- no, yeah. I'm telling you, people would say that, right? right? right. I mean, like there, right. were, there were Sammy Hagar fans. I'm not. I'm not making the case myself. Right. Um, of course, I, I I'm more comfortable making arguments about sitcom casts than I am mm. about bands. Mm-hmm. But I wish I get my wife on here for that. Um, anyway, we could do this all day. And I did not let uh, Continentis a friend and a colleague, Christine Rosen's friend and colleague. No, you're all friends. Uh, I was not. I was just trying to. Poke the barrel. Oh yeah, bit. no, no, no. But I think Connery's I, been terrific. Yes, he's great. Yeah. All right. So with that, uh, thanks for being here, and um, and we'll have you back. Hopefully, you know, it won't be so long for the next time. Love to. Okay, so Abe Greenwald has left the studio. Um, it was nice chatting with him. That's the longest I've chatted with him in a long time, and he was a good sport about all the ribbing. And just to be very clear, yes, I was trying to pick fights and start something and all that kind of stuff. But I love all those people, and and. Make of it what you will. I don't know what else there is to say, really. Um, we, uh, I'm sorry. We, after we stopped recording, we just sat around like two altacacas at the Carnegie Deli and and griped about you kids today. So um, uh, I, I, I've lost the thread. But uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. I don't know. I think you're going to listen to this pretty soon, just given the the podcast we have in the pipeline. But, uh, and I'm around for a few more, few more days. If you want to send me money, um, or brown liquor, that would be great. Um, but otherwise, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to Abe Greenwald. Thanks to John Podoritz for letting him out of the box, um, and do this. And, um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.